Welcome. Good morning. Good. Yes. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, my brain is waking up. And we are at, we are nearly done with the series with Feet on the Ground, a series where we've been going through the whole study of 1 John. We're almost to the end. We still haven't fixed our spelling errors in our bumper video. So that's, we're rocking solid. So uh, thank you for all, for everyone who reminds us every week. Yes, we, we know it's there. It's, we just love it so much we can't change it. So if you've got your Bibles, turn in them to 1 John. We're in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 20. And if you were here last week, you might be thinking, hmm, this is interesting. Why are we going back in time? Because we were in chapter 4, the famous like love chapter of 1 John last week. Why are we going back to chapter 3? Well, it's because we were scheduled to go into chapter 5 this week, but there's too much in chapter 3 that we kind of just jumped over that I don't want to jump over. I wanted us to go back and just take a deeper look at what we're going to see in this passage. So if you've got your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 20. You can look it up on YouVersion. Uh, we have the notes and the Bible passages there. Just go under events and Manuka Bible Church and you'll find our notes on the Bible app there for YouVersion. But for everyone else, if you've got your physical Bible or, or your phone device Bible, uh, go to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, this is, again, the self-identified best friend of Jesus talking here, writing to a church in Ephesus that's got serious issues, um, just, and, and not massive, terrible issues like uh, the church in Corinth that Paul writes to, but their issue is that they just have a real, real bad time getting along with one another and loving those in the church and those outside of the church, and they're super self-righteous about it. That's their big deal. John's big thing is this. If you understood the incarnation, like if you legitimately understood who Jesus really was. You say you believe in him, but you believe in like this, like he was a, a mirage type thing and you don't really believe he was physically on the ground. If you actually believed in Jesus, the God man, 100% God, 100% man simultaneously, that would not only change your theology, it would change the way that you interact with humans. Because Jesus was God with feet on the ground and he's called us to take steps into the path that he's laid out before us. So we're actually in, in about three quarters of the way through the book in chapter three here in verse 11 and following. So if you could stand with me as we read this morning's passage. John writes, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that a murderer has no eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This passage that we see um, John talking about, he, it, we surface, if you've grown up in church land or not, you know about this guy. Um, he surfaces the, the story of Cain, specifically talking about Cain, but the whole Cain and Abel story. And Cain and Abel has been handed down through the centuries um, in story and art form about these two brothers that one kills the other. It's not funny. Murder is bad. So this is, it's all the way from that account on. And you would think that, okay, maybe John's just bringing it up because 
The Jewish kids and the Greek kids in Ephesus who knew about the Old Testament Bible probably had flannel graphs too, and they probably talked about Cain and Abel and Cain killing his brother. And, and you know, Abel's, Abel's uh, sacrifice to God was honored by God, and Cain's wasn't, and so he kills him and that whole thing. But that's not, it's not that. It's actually not just a common Bible story. Cain and Abel was a focal point in the first century. Um, if you look through the Bible, you just look through the New Testament, Matthew talks about Cain. Luke talks about Cain. The author of the book of Hebrews talks about Cain. The author of Jude talks about Cain. The first century, though thousands of years separated from this account, talked about Cain a lot. In fact, Philo, who was a Jewish uh, philosopher and a contemporary of Paul, wrote not one but four books on this guy, Cain. And the main thing that you're going to get from any book or any account in the New Testament or outside of it, within Jewish discussions, whenever this was brought up, the primary message, the takeaway for the kids going home was this. Don't be like Cain. Don't be a Cain. The world's got a lot of Cains. Don't be like him. And the reason that Cain was such an easy target was because, and, and not that he was different from anyone else in the scriptures, but it was just this, such an easy target because when it came down to just him and his only brother, everyone looking at Cain saw a reflection of themselves. Cain decided to shoot from the hip and go with the gut and choose to do something that he felt like doing, and it showcases the carnage of the damage Thereafter, We know that it was something that he, was, he regretted because he was shame. He was in shame about it. He was scared about the consequences. The message was, look, in life there are choices. And, and, and whenever we choose to break the law of God, and, and if you wonder what the law of God is, Jesus consolidated, you can, you can just basically consolidate the entire Old Testament law into two things. Love God and love everybody else. The law of God is a law of love. Love God, love everybody else. And what Cain decided to do was go... I know what you want me to do, but I'm going to choose to take matters into my own hands and take revenge. And I'm not going to love my brother. So he broke the law of God. Sin at its source is a betrayal of love. Sin at its source is breaking God's law of love to love God and love others. And so we see in Cain, don't be like Cain because this is a picture of what we all will do. This is the trajectory of all of our decisions that are built and based around our needs being met and the consequences thereafter. It's sin. And so, so John gives us a couple of reasons why we shouldn't follow suit with Cain. Instead, we should, we should walk away from that. We should walk away from sin. First off, because sin always has unintended victims. Take a look at verse 13, or verse, uh, verses 11 through 12 again in chapter 3. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. So what's the opposite of that? Don't be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Okay, I don't think that like as a little kid, Cain was like lighting, you know, the family tent on fire or he was like just drawing disturbing drawings about, a you know, Abel, you know, falling off cliffs or something like that. I don't think that was necessarily the case. This looks like it was more something that, that he had no idea that he was under the influence by the enemy Satan, whose whole goal is to destroy us. And so what does he utilize? He utilizes this one thing, this envy. My brother gets favor from my parents. My brother gets favor from God. And here I am. This is the story of my life. And it could have, been just, it could have just stopped there at envy, but it didn't. It continued to grow. So it went from simply being, I 
hate the fact that he has favor and I don't. To I want the favor he has so I can have it too. I, will, I can't get the favor he has, so I'm going to destroy him and eliminate him from the picture so that I don't have to deal with the fact that I have this competition anymore. What ended up happening was that sin of, of envy, which started so domesticated, it was secret. No one knew about it. It wasn't a big deal. No one even saw it there, but it was there. And left unchecked, it morphed into and evolved into murder. Why does Jesus, why does Jesus uh, make it such a big deal about not hating each other? Why does he say if you hate your brother or sister, you're, you're murdering them? Why? Cain, the seed of envy and hatred grew to the point that it ended up with that trajectory. My sin hurts other people. And this happens um, in, in every, every sin that we have. Again, no matter, you, all, all of us in this room have sins that we are like, yeah, that's, I mean, it's not great, but it's not as bad as someone else's sin. And we domesticate and we totally territorialize, territorialize our sin as being super okay or manageable. And because it's secret, we haven't been caught for it yet. Let me just give you one great example that's so common and common with a lot of us here. And that's the, that's the sin of lust. Lust is something, let me just give it to you from a, from a male vantage point. Lust is, whether you're 15 or 55 years old, saying, man, I want to have that person's body. I want them. I want them sexually. And what, and what that betrays is the, love that, the law that God gave us, the law that love God and love others, trusting his leadership and loving other people. Like, well, you know, this isn't hurting anybody. This is secret. I haven't done anything to this person. God's law of love, as far as like a sexual relationship, is this picture of this husband and wife who have pledged, well, a couple, a fiance couple, who've pledged their life to each other in this ceremony called marriage. And they said, I am pledging my life to you. I am pledging my life to you. I'm laying down my life for you. I'm laying down my life for you. And then taking the step of giving each other their body. Not giving each other their body prior to that because to do that would say, I want from your body now what I'm not willing to tell you with my life. In the act of marriage, all of a sudden you have a husband and wife saying, this isn't my physical needs being met type of a thing. I'm proclaiming to this world before God and, and my family and friends, I'm laying down my life for you forever. And now I'm going to lay down my body for you. I'm giving you my, I'm not taking your body, I'm giving you my body and I'm giving you my body. And so when a person is caught in the, the snare of lust, basically what they're saying is, yeah, but I want that person. I'm not in a relationship with them. We're not married, but I want that person. But you know what? I'm not doing anything. It's just a fantasy land. What's the harm? There are no unintended victims in that situation. Or is there? What am I doing? I'm saying this thing that God has crafted to be a gift to give to someone. I'm not giving to anyone but myself. This is why self-love can be so messed up. The whole idea of self-love or me time. Listen, I get it. There are times where you just need to chill out. And whatever you do for me time, like sitting in a bathtub, putting salt or oil, I don't know, what you, whatever you feel makes you feel relaxed or eating good food or, or whatever, that's awesome. Nothing wrong with that. But when we start to condition our brain that I need to be served, I, I have needs, I'm going to, you know what? And if you people aren't going to meet my needs or if this person won't meet my needs, I'm going to meet them on my own. Lust. And the idea that this is all secret because it's in my head all of a sudden converts something that was intended to be given into something that's like, this person is a commodity, a physical, mental, psychological fantasy commodity, and this person, and this person, and this person. No unintended victims. Every female you run across, if you're a male or, or vice versa, 
becomes a commodity for your psychological ability to hold on to a fantasy. And that steps up when it comes even into the whole section of, of you know, pornography. And if, is that have unintended victims? And I think that it's a lot easier to make the case that no, that it has tons of unintended victims. Because the women that are trapped into, in, in pornography, um, many of them land. In fact, a majority of them who are in the industry are there because the only value they ever experienced growing up was from a father or an uncle or a stranger who abused them sexually. And so the only way that they can feel valuable is to let other people do whatever they want with them. Because then at least then they feel like they're getting the attention they were starved for, for when they were growing up. You may not pay a dime for the porn that you're watching, but by participating in it, by watching it, you are victimizing people who long after the industry says you're ugly and old, you have no business being in this business anymore, they will be walking with the scars you participated in laying down. Sin always has unintended victims, whether it's lust or envy, the trajectory ends up hurting other people. Why is God so against it? Because it hurts his kids. Why, why, why is the other reason that God is against it? Because it hurts you. Because sin always conditions the worst version of myself. I don't know what, what time of day you're at the best version of yourself and what time of day you're at the worst version of yourself, but we have those times of day. How many of you, you're at the best version of yourself in the evening or, or, or the nighttime? You're like, boom, that's when I'm fully me. Two people. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of that way too. I, I'm, I'm, that's, that's, that's where I'm like, oh, I'm awake now. Woohoo! Okay, how many of you, like, you're, you're at the best version of yourself, like, midday during the workday or during school day? That's when you're the best version of yourself around with people around you. Okay, a little bit more. How many of you that you're the best version of yourself early in the morning? Sick, sick people. I'm praying for all of you. But regardless, all of us know that, that there's different times of day that we just feel more us. Sin is so cancerous and so messed up because it will always, not sometimes, it will always, left unchecked, allowed to grow, will convert you into being the worst version of yourself. The worst version of yourself. Look back at verse 12. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil. Not action. He didn't wake up one day and says, you know what? I know what I'm going to do today. I'm going to murder my brother. Why didn't I think about this before? It was something that was a conditioning process. As you allow sin to go unchecked, you're like, it's not that big of a deal. It's just in my head. It's not that big of a deal. It's just with this person. It's not that big of a deal. And we just let it grow, grow, grow. Ultimately, it ends up getting professional by the end of it. And it, the person that you are at the end of it is not the person you wanted to be when you started out. Who do you want to be in five years? Who do you want to be in five years? Because you're making that person, that five years from now person, right now you're planting the seeds of that person in your choices, in your thoughts, your words, the words that you're saying to people. You're planting the, 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 the semi-pro version of the professional person you'll be in each one of those regards, positive or negative, five years from now. Why, why should we choose not to be like Cain? Because sin always conditions the worst version of ourselves. And finally, because sin always takes me one step further from the person God is making me into. See, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, God does have a plan for you and he wants to finish his work in you. And you know what? His work five years from now is five years from now, you're looking more like, talking more like, loving more like, more selfless like Jesus. 
not the worst version of yourself that you're like, I hate that person. Why is that always a person that comes out? Why is it that person's always a person that surfaces when I'm under stress? Why is it that person's always one that I'm surfaces when I'm bored? But instead, five years from now, being, becoming more and more like Christ. But look what, what he talks about. Because again, that whole idea of sin being this breaking of God's law to love God and love others. Listen to what he says in verse four of chapter three. Everyone who sins breaks the law. What law? God's law of love. Love God, love others. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But if you know that he appeared, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who lives in him, chew on this one because this is tough. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. To which we're like, okay, I didn't need to hear that today. Like, I'm okay with the idea that we're all struggling to overcome our sin. I get that. But John seems to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, boom, no more sin. Well, there's a pro- I'll be honest with you. I still struggle with sin. And there's one or two of you in here who still struggle with sin. And John, in the previous chapters, says that we are still struggling with sin. So why did he change his mind in chapter 3? Or was he saying something else? I believe what John is saying in chapter three is this. There is a difference between walking and seeing a field and saying, I'm gonna walk through this field. And all of a sudden you realize that you're getting snared by thorn bushes all around and it's pricking your arm. And all of a sudden you're seeing the blood happen and you're seeing your clothes get caught and you're recognizing I'm in a trap. This is, I, I'm, I can't continue like this. What have I done? This was my choice. I own that this was my choice. I own that these scars are now my scars, but I need to get out of this field. There's a difference between that and walking through the same field and getting pricked and cut and bleeding from all the thorn bushes around you and saying, you know what? This is as beautiful as it gets. I'm gonna make a home here. In fact, I'm gonna craft my home out of the thorn bushes of this whole area so that every day I can walk in a cycle of getting sliced to pieces over and over and over again, telling everyone else, this is beautiful. There's a difference between falling into sin or recognizing, what am I doing? Why am I here? Why have I chosen to do this again? And making sin your home. If you're a a follower of Jesus and sin is your home, maybe God hasn't made a home in you. To which you should say, Lord, now is as good a time as any. I'm surrendering my life to you. I've walked through this field and I realize I'm starting to make a home here. I'm cool with the stuff that I shouldn't be cool with. And so I'm, I'm asking you for forgiveness. Get me out of this field. And whenever I walk by here and I start taking steps into that field, Lord, wake me up so that I'm walking out of it. Don't, don't be like Cain. And the cool thing is is that John says this, you don't have to be. You actually, if you're in Christ, you don't have to be like Cain, which of course brings us to John Steinbeck in East of Eden. How many of you have read East of Eden? Three people. All right, cool. For the rest of us in here, if you, I, I'm about three quarters of the way through this book. If, if you're feeling overly happy in life and you're just like, I just have an overabundance of happiness. I need to do something about this. Read East of Eden. It'll take you whoosh, right down because this book is a layer upon layer upon layer of human tragedy uh, in, in, uh, beautifully set in, in Southern Cal- or Central California. Amazing book. Um, and, and John Steinbeck said that all of his other books were leading up to this one. Like they were... Pr- 
grapes of wrath. It was all right, but it was practice for East of Eden. And East of Eden, again, you see human tragedy upon human tragedy with this, these two families that parallel the uh, early family of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Um, in fact, one of the, the central characters, his name is Adam, and he has twins. And, and in this, this account of the twins, um, they're trying to figure out names. And he's, Adam's just messed up. He's messed up beyond belief by life. And he hasn't even named his twins and, uh, after, long after they've been talking even. And so he gets a family friend together and the house servant, which is, his name is Lee, to get together to help him out with coming up with names. And as they're coming up, the, the joke is dropped of like, well, you're Adam. Why don't you name your kids Adam and Eve? Or uh, I want you to name your kids uh, Cain and Abel. To which he says, oh, no, we're not, not going to do that. But that got them talking about the passage of Cain and Abel. And they read in East of Eden, they read through the whole accounting of Cain and Abel. Well, fast forward 10 years. The house servant Lee is re-talking with, um, with, with the, that family and saying, you know what? Ever since we had that conversation about Cain and Abel, I haven't been able to get it out of my mind. Like I went back and I researched the passage and, and I read the passage where God is talking to Cain and, and God says, sin lieth, and he uses the King James Version, sin lieth at the door and unto thee shall be his desire. Sin's right at the door crouching, ready to take you apart and wants to destroy you and thou shalt rule over it. And Lee said, I've been thinking about that phrase for 10 years because I look around and I see that in human nature is we don't want to be told what to do. And so the, that, that translation of you shout is saying that you, this is a command. Sin is going to be trying to take you out. You have to be against it. You have to rule over it. And, and Lee says, but we don't want to do that. So I started looking for another translation and I found one. And the other translation says, thou will rule over it. In other words, it's not that you have to, it's a command. It's going to happen anyway, so you don't even need to worry about it. And, and basically saying, you know what, it's, it's, ultimately you're going you're gonna to triumph over sin, so don't even, don't even sweat it. But Lee says that's just as problematic. If this person's not going to be avoiding sin because it's commanded, this person's not going to be avoiding sin because it doesn't matter. Ultimately, I'm going to triumph anyway. What's the big deal? And he said, I went back to the elders in my Chinese community and we studied this. We learned Hebrew to try to see if we could find a better translation. And he says, I believe that the best translation for that word is this. And this is all in Steinbeck's East of Eden. He says, this is the phrase, sin lieth at the door and unto thee shall be his desire. Thou mayest, thou mayest rule over it. He said, thou mayest is the most profoundly powerful phrase that if a culture could grab onto thou mayest, everything would change. Why? Because thou mayest says this, sin wants to destroy you, but you have the ability to reject it. You have a choice. It's not inevitable that you're going to overcome it. It's not, it's not something that's a straight command and, and this is like, you know, a punishment. God gives this to Cain before he chooses to kill his brother. He says, sin is crouching at your door. Thou mayest make a different choice. And he says, if we actually grabbed onto that, we could avoid following Cain's path. Don't be like Cain. But the cool thing is that John says, the, way, the antidote to being like Cain is to choose Christ. Don't choose the path of Cain. Choose the path of Christ. Because again, what Cain and sin is saying, I have needs. I want these needs met. So I'm going to get my needs met, whatever it means, regardless of what God says, regardless of whether or not it's loving to other people. I'm going to get these needs met. Christ, on the other hand, says, I have needs that I'm putting on the back burner. I have things that should be do me, respect, honor. I'm going to back burner all that. I'm going to set it aside out of love. 
And that actually is the, the, the key phrase in verse 16. He uses this word, tithemi, which means setting aside. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. When he says, okay, I've told you all the garbage about Cain. Listen to this, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ, tithemi, laid down his life, set it aside for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You want to know what the difference, the different path is? If you're not going to choose Cain, the world's got tons of Cain. If you don't want to choose Cain, you want to choose Christ, it's going to be you setting aside some things. Okay, first thing that, that you can do in setting aside is setting aside time. Setting aside time. He talks about the fact that Jesus lays down his life. He invested 33 years of life. He entered into the timeline of humanity. He invested that out of love. And we follow suit by not saying, I have needs, I need to have them met, and that's the, the, the goal of today. But instead, we actually set aside time. How does this look? If you're coming home, and let's say that you have a spouse or you've got kids at home, when you're coming home and you're just toasted from the day, today was garbage, it was stressed out, stressful, you're tired, you got chewed out for something you didn't do, you got passed up for a promotion, and you're driving home and you're just like, oh man, I just, I just, need, to, I just need to have silence, I need to have everyone just walk away. Some of you, you come home and you walk in the door and everyone's like, okay, whoa. And they just walk away because they know that you're going to be, if they got on your, is that anyone like that? Okay. Oh, wow. Good. All right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I understand. Okay. So instead you are coming home saying, I'm coming home from this job, going home to my primary job as a husband or a father or a wife. And what I'm going to do is I need to go into this scenario, setting aside time. My son Cohen I knew that I was going to preach on this. So I'm like, okay, I need to really start practicing this stuff. So I'm like, I, I need to, and so I'm looking at Cohen and I'm like, this is yesterday. I'm like, yesterday afternoon, I'm like, hey, Cohen, you want to go with dad into the garage? I, I need to put like this screw into this board for something. You want to help dad out with that? And Cohen's like, no. I'm like, and he says, dad, you want to play Legos with me? I'm like, no. And I walked away. And I'm in the garage. I'm like, what am I doing? We need to realize that love is not you're meeting my needs, but me finding a way to set aside my priorities, set aside my needs for you. When you're kids, high school kids, junior high kids, uh, students, children that are elementary age, you want to freak your parents out? When you get home from school or they get home from work or whatever, just look at them and say, hey, how was your day? They may have a heart attack. But it's going to be worth it because what you're going to do is you're setting aside time to say, I want to prioritize time to find out about you and serve you. Do I want to ask you about your day? No, but I'm going to ask you because I want to find out more about you because that's love. One of the worst things we do as parents and grandparents or spouses or girlfriends and boyfriends is when we get together, we, do a, we have a great ritual these days. It's, um, you're, you're on your device and your face is glued there. Parents, spouses, girlfriends, boyfriends, put the phone down. Put it down. There's not one single person on their deathbed that's going to say, I just wish if I had 15 minutes of Facebook more than I invested in my life, I could have taken 15 minutes from my children and gave it to that. But I can't. No one's going to say that. You know why? Because it's waste. And, it, and it's just like, whoo, whoo, whoo. and if you've ever fallen down the Facebook rabbit hole of like going down just like the timeline, it never ends. 
You can keep going back to 2014 and it keeps going. You're like, oh man, I knew I hated her. And you keep going. And when you forget, the memories come up and remind you. So here's the thing. Set aside time. When you walk into a room, parent, try this. When you get home, take your phone and put it by the front door. I know you're going to feel naked without it on you, but put it by the front door and actually walk into that space and look at people in the face. And it's going to be tough because you're going to be looking through a device, but still invest time. Not so that you get thanked, not so people fall down and say, you're just the most amazing parent. You're the most amazing boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, whatever. No, you're doing it because you're choosing love. You're choosing Christ, not Cain. Set aside time. Not only setting aside time. Oh, I'm sorry, Rick Warren. This is a great quote. Listen to this. The best use of life is love. The best expression of love is time. The best time to love is now. I don't care what Cain has happened leading up to this moment. From here on out, don't choose Cain one more day, okay? Choose Christ. Choose time. Set aside finances. Look at what happens. In this, in this passage here, you've got um, John using three versions of the word life, that we translate life every time or, or almost like life, but it's different words each time. Look at verse 15. Anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life, but the word he uses is zoe. And zoe, zoe is this idea of the life that God has intended for you. It's not heaven. It's like heaven is eternity where we experience the life that God's designed for us, but we start to experience zoe, that, that life starting now that leads into eternity. He says, and you know that no murderer has eternal Zoe residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life, but he uses a different word. He uses the word psyche. Psyche is the idea of the whole person. Jesus laid down all of him out of love, his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives, our, all of us, for brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions, that's what the NIV says, but it's not material possessions. The word is bios. And the word for bios is also the word for life, the means of life, the things that people need to get through life, the resources that people are able to buy things with and go through life. He says, if anyone has that bios, life, and sees a brother and sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So what he's saying here is this. If we want to not choose Cain, but we want to choose Christ, we need to realize that Christ invested himself and sacrificed, not for his needs being met, but for the needs of others. And so I want to just challenge you. Um, you a lot of us, we, we have just been awful with our finances and you're just like in a crater of debt. You're like, man, I, what, I, I just made so many mistakes. And if you're someone who feels like you, you're not really good with money, I got to promise you, I'm worse than you. I, I don't, I'm not money financially minded, but my wife is. And I thank God for that because we'd be homeless if she wasn't, but she's really good. But the one thing that we were both on the same page about was the idea that we wanted to make sure that we were giving a significant percentage of our income to, the, to what God's doing to the local church. And we wanted to set that aside. You know, we wanted to give it right. And so we started with 10%. And because that just kind of like seemed like what Baptists do. And so, that, so that's what we did. And then all of a sudden, as the more we got through life, the more we decided to like just give more because there weren't any rules against it. So we're like, all right. Because after a while, you start getting hooked on it. You start realizing what God's doing in your life to other people and in your life with this liberty. And all of a sudden, it was mind-blowing. And so we just kept on going every year. We want to give a little bit more. And all of a sudden, we were realizing we weren't just giving to the church. We were actually finding other missionaries to support. And not only that, the cool thing is about setting aside finances and living life the way that John is talking about is this. You're going to be the guy who's at work. You're going to be the lady that's at work. And all of a sudden, there's someone who has this need. Their tire just blew out. They've got no cash to be able to pay for the uh, uh, repair. 
but you do. Why? Because you've set aside finances. Like we, we're not going to spend everything we have coming in on us. That would be normal. It would just be Cain. But instead, we've set aside stuff for moments like this so that we could be the person who is the hands and feet of Jesus in that moment. Set aside finances. Thirdly, set aside forgiveness. And I love this passage. Jump back to verse 13. This is, this is great. This should be on, a, on Christian Hallmark cards. Verse 13. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. It's kind of like you. Don't be shocked when people hate you. Shouldn't be a surprise. <laughs> I'm like, I love that. Uh, but what he's saying is this. Don't be blindsided by the fact that the world's, they're not going to be your fan. Don't be surprised by that. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does, love, who does not love remains in death. In other words, what he's saying is this. This world is going to give you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to want to respond by being blindsided. I can't believe they did that to me. I can't believe that happened to me. See, that's why I don't trust anybody. And explosion. But he says, don't be surprised. Instead, remember that you are created to love. And so here's what we need to do. We're not only set aside, setting aside time and finances, we're also setting aside forgiveness. In other words, I put it this way, make an allowance in advance for the failures of people you know and come in contact with. And please say this with me, this last part in yellow, forgive, one more time, forgive, forgive forward. And if that sounds goofy to you, maybe you haven't seen this movie. Has anyone seen the movie Minority Report? Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, yes. All right. I love the artwork that's on, on, on films um, and movie posters because they, they're trying to let you know what's in the film. And the first movie poster to the far left, they're trying to say, okay, number one, we've got Tom Cruise in this film. And it's somewhat technological. We don't know what, but he's doing something with a hologram. The next two subsequent movie posters is just letting you know this is a Tom Cruise movie. And so he's probably running from something. You know that? Uh, thank you. All right. Now, here's the cool thing about it, though. The cool thing about Minority Report is this, that my favorite of the posters isn't up here. It's one that was far less popular. It's this one. I love this poster. The reason being is this. There's a very famous statue. It's going to be in lots of court buildings and everything else. It's of this woman who represents justice. And she has scales and, and it's totally even. And something's around her eyes. What is it? A blindfold. Because justice is except in Minority Report. Justice is not blind in Minority Report because they've got the technolo technology in the future to be able to know what you're going to do, what crime you're going to do before you do it. So they can always be ready with judgment before you even have accomplished the crime to judge you, to arrest you, boom. And we're no different. We actually operate that way. We've been burned so many times in life, disappointed so many times of life, we're ready to judge in a moment's notice. We are not going to be a doormat. We are not going to let someone walk over us. And we are always on edge. And you know what happens when you're on edge? The next time the shoe drops, Cain. Cain. So here's the deal, Manuka Bible Church. Which are you? Are you Cain? Or are you Christ? What choices are you making right now with the way that you're thinking and processing that are actually feeding Cain or feeding Christ? Because John's message is don't, don't, don't be like Cain, be like Christ. And the thing I would want to challenge you is this, 
between the two brothers, the brother Cain, and the one whose scripture says that we are co-heirs with Christ, he is our brother as well. Choose the better brother. Choose Christ. And if we, as a, you want to know what could change a culture? In a world of Cain, what if we sent out from this place 1,500 representatives who are burned just as much as everyone else, who are disappointed just as much as everyone else, and yet, instead of reacting like Cain, chose Christ. That would change this culture. Manuka, Braidwood, Morris, Wilmington, Rockdale, Joliet, Plainfield, it would change this whole area. If we had 1,500 people who chose Christ over Cain, let that be our story. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, we live in a world full of Cain and we have examples probably as recent as this morning of us expressing that in our own world. And yet God, John reminds us, this guy who walked with you, who watched you, who got a chance to watch you be disappointed, had a chance to watch you be betrayed, had a chance to watch you be disrespected, the chance to watch you be killed. Communicate that we follow your lead in the way that we react to a world doing the same thing to us. That we react your way to a world that's treating us the way that they treated you. Lord, there's people in this room that have different levels of difficulty with that because life has been incredibly painful for them. And there's a lot of us, Lord, who just, we've never, we're just not in the habit so much easier for us just to do what comes natural, to shoot from the hip, to go with our gut. And yet we look at the outcome being Cain time and time again. God, I pray that you help us reject that and instead choose Christ. And as we do that, I pray that you impact our culture, that our culture flips because they get a chance to see a version of love they're not accustomed to, a version of responding to disappointment and tragedy that they're not ready for, and that it'll look not like us, it'll look not like Cain, but it'll look like you. I will give you the thanks for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray.